Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where usually we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. But in this special holiday episode, uh, we will be watching a horror-adjacent film chosen by our patrons over on Patreon. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. And thank you for listening today. How you doing, Sarah? Well, it's funny that uh, the movie we are watching is called The Nightmare Before Christmas because we are recording this pretty much directly after Christmas. Yes, we are recording this episode on Boxing Day. This is most certainly The Nightmare After Christmas. Yes. Uh, The Nightmare Before the Commercial Hell of Boxing Week. I mean, today was Boxing Day. It's certainly The Nightmare Before New Year's Day. Yeah. Or... Next year's Christmas. Right. (laughs) Or the nightmare before next year's Christmas. Yes. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I had a pretty decent Christmas. Um, I love Christmas. And you spoiled me. So, uh, you know, no complaints in that regard. How about you? I am doing well. Yes. Excited about this movie because I can't remember the last time I've seen Nightmare Before Christmas? Yes. I have definitely seen it before. Sure. But I definitely watched it frequently as a little kid, Mm -hmm. but often, you know, when I would be babysat by my auntie and it would be like this um, Secret of Nim or Hocus Pocus that I would often watch. Mm. Uh, And I definitely remember Hocus Pocus and Secret of Nim better than nightmare before christmas interesting and i have seen nightmare before christmas since then but i cannot think of when Hmm. so we'll see so i definitely like grew up on nightmare before christmas i don't remember like the first time ever seeing nightmare before christmas like i've just always seen nightmare before christmas in the womb even though that doesn't make sense definitely not in the womb but um My dad really liked Nightmare Before Christmas, um, and we didn't own the VHS in the black clamshell. We had it taped. We rented it from the rental store and then taped it. Uh, So we had our illicit copy. Yes. And I watched it a lot as a kid. I think because of its like liminal state as both a Halloween and Christmas movie, that was pretty much an excuse to watch it like any time between like the start of October and the end of December. And we had the soundtrack on cassette tape Hmm. and dad had the opening song on a loop that he could play on a boom box on our lawn with our Halloween decorations on Halloween. Perfect. Uh, So we did that every year. So I watched nightmare before Christmas, like constantly as a kid. And then like I got to junior high and Nightmare Before Christmas became, like, very trendy. It became some people's personality traits. Yeah. That liking this movie is my personality. Yeah, and I was friends with a lot of people like that. Because this movie appeals to a lot of the kinds of people I hang out with, which is, like, mostly people who feel, like, kind of outcasts. Nightmare Before Christmas was one of those kids' movies where it was like, I can like this kid's movie, but not be like other kids, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
And yeah, to clarify, no shade to people who love this movie to mm-hmm. the point where it could be described as a personality trait. I, I didn't mean to throw shade or anything. Yeah, I just sort of identify that phenomena because it's what led to me watching the movie less. Sure. Just because like a lot of my friends were like so super into it, it just kind of felt less special to me, I guess, somehow. And also like I went through, you know, the teen years of like when you're just super contrarian about everything. Sure. And you also want to like graduate into more gritty types sure. of things. And like, you know, I wanted people to take me seriously and all that kind of stuff. Now that said, I never stopped liking the movie. It was never, I never went through a period where I was like, oh no, it's bad. Um, I just stopped watching it as often. I think, you know, I bought it on DVD the last time I saw it must have been like with you at some point because I don't think so. I don't have any memory of that. Yeah. Like I don't really either, but like, I feel like that must have happened at some point. No, no, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't think so. I have to disagree not to be a contrarian, right. but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. sure that the last time I would have seen this would have been in high school. Mm. I'm excited to see if this holds up and yeah, to learn a bit more about the production. Uh, so why don't you tell us about uh, the context around this movie? We've kind of danced around this era before mm. of 1993, but also of Tim Burton. Yes. Um, thanks to our episode on Beetlejuice, yes. a previous horror-adjacent movie. But yeah, let's go into it. So, you know, this was on our Patreon poll for December for like pretty obvious reasons um yes because this is a christmas movie in my opinion not a halloween movie like i i see like the blurred lines there but uh to me on the spectrum it's much closer to christmas than halloween so the thing is this is the third of three movies in a row that tim burton made that were set at christmas because of that i put all three of them on our horror adjacent list and then that's kind of how that list ended up morphing into just a tim burton list because a lot of his movies are set at christmas and a lot of his movies are horror adjacent (laughs) the christmas movies for those who are curious are edward scissorhands batman returns and nightmare before christmas the whole reason for this holiday obsession from tim burton whether it's halloween or christmas or what have you apparently comes from the fact that he grew up in Burbank in California in the suburbs where the temperature and weather is the same all year round. So the scenery around you looks the same all year round, except for on holidays like Halloween or Christmas where people put up these decorations. And so they were like the one time a year where Burton's surroundings gained any kind of like visual texture or character. (laughs) That explains a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And so they became like very special to him. He became very obsessed with them. As you've already mentioned, we've talked about Burton before in our Beetlejuice bonus episode. So I don't want to like repeat all of that. So if you want the deep dive on the early life of Tim Burton, check that episode out. Um, But our story for Nightmare Before Christmas begins in 1982 after Burton completed his stop-motion animated film Vincent for Disney. And he was looking for like, you know, what's my next project? He wrote a three-page long poem called The Nightmare Before Christmas, which was inspired obviously like by 
Clement Clark Moore's A Visit from St. Nicholas, which many people know by its opening line, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Um, It was also inspired by How the Grinch Stole Christmas and stop-motion animated Christmas specials like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because the intent of the poem was to be the basis of a holiday TV special that would be stop-motion animated like the Rankin-Bass stuff but basically consist of like a poem read throughout by a narrator who would kind of do a little bit of dialogue throughout like how Boris Karloff narrated How the Grinch Stole Christmas, with the intent at that time, of course, for the narrator to be Vincent Price. So Burton began working with uh, his creative partner from Vincent, uh, Rick Heinrichs, on concept art and storyboards for the TV special. Heinrichs designed the look of Jack Skellington and some of the other uh, major characters who were in the poem, like uh, Jack's Dog Zero and Santa Claus and those three kids who go and capture Santa Claus and yeah that's uh lock shock and barrel right Heinrichs by the way would continue to work with Burton uh throughout his career often as a set designer an art director or a production designer so a lot of that like Tim Burton look is also like a Rick Heinrichs look um Heinrichs even got as far as to begin sculpting the stop-motion models, uh, but production halted when Disney decided that Burton was too fucking weird to work at their company and <laughs> fired him. Yes. So flash forward to 1990, and Burton's made some movies. Uh, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, which made $40 million. Beetlejuice, which made $74 million. And a little movie called Batman, which made $411 million. And Edward Scissorhands after that, which made $86 million. So Weird is in. By this point, yeah, exactly. Burton can kind of do whatever the hell he wants. Um, He had had complete creative control on Edward Scissorhands. Uh, You know, no studio meddling like he had with Beetlejuice or Batman. Um, And he could kind of pick whatever project he wanted to do. So Burton wanted to revive Nightmare as a feature film and discovered that Disney still held the film rights. Because when you work at Disney and you do work at Disney for Disney, when you're at Disney, Disney owns that work. That's how this works. Anyways, sorry, all the research I did suggested he was kind of like surprised that Disney held the rights and that he couldn't just go off and do it on his own. And it's like, yeah, dude, that's anyways. So he goes back to Disney, and at this time, uh, Disney chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg was ready to welcome Burton back with open arms uh, and, you know, have a little bit of that Burton magic. Um, Disney president David Hoberman uh, was really excited because he felt doing Nightmare Before Christmas would give the studio the opportunity to push technical achievements in animation and, like, push stop-motion animation forward by doing, like, a whole feature in stop-motion. Um, and he also saw it as an opportunity to change Disney's image and show they could do different kinds of films. Yeah, because this is like pretty, you know, early steps into the Disney Renaissance. Yeah, uh, for it, nineteen ninety, we're sort of like before Beauty and the Beast, after Oliver and Company. We've done Little Mermaid. Yeah. So you know, Disney animation is on the rise, and you know, Disney makes a lot of different kinds of movies and. 
has for a long time, and I'll even get into that a little bit more later, but when I say that Hoberman wanted to change Disney's image with this film and show they could do different kinds of films, I specifically mean the movies that were marketed as Walt Disney animated feature films, right? So yeah, Disney was like, let's do it. So to adapt the three-page poem that was meant for a half-hour TV special into a feature-length film, uh, Beetlejuice screenwriter Michael McDowell was brought in. This is the guy whose Beetlejuice script was too dark. Yes. He adapted the story into a feature film outline. You know, how do we expand this out, right? But he and Burton had creative differences over the structure of the film because as Burton argued and fought with McDowell... He decided, no, the movie needs to be a musical. So he dismissed McDowell and decided, you know, who's my music guy, right? My music guy's Danny Elfman. Um, I thought it was called Music Man. (laughs) Right. Uh, So he brings in Danny Elfman, who had done the scores for all of Tim Burton's movies so far. He's a big part of this movie. He writes the music and the lyrics for the film, among other things. Um, We talked about him a little because he was involved in Beetlejuice, but let's talk about him some more. Yeah, he was um, a very short mention on our Beetlejuice episode because he did the opening theme. Mm -hmm. Um, So let me go into detail here. Danny Elfman was born on May 29th, 1953 in California, growing up in Baldwin Hills. As a kid, he loved going to the local movie theater and especially watching classic science fiction, fantasy, and horror, um, which I think you can see translate into the style of films that he kind of gravitated towards, but also um, the style of music that he would have been introduced to, like Franz Waxman and Bernard Herrmann. Right, yeah. So that's his musical like understanding. <laughs> and then... Into high school, he was introduced to early 60s jazz, Mm -hmm. and that acted as a gateway drug to musical history, including uh, becoming a fan of 20th century composers like Igor Stravinsky. Okay. After high school, Danny and his brother Richard went to Europe and joined the Jerome Savary's Le Grand Magic Circus, which is an avant-garde mix of musical theater, operetta, drama, and more. Got it. So it's like running off to join the circus, but in Europe? So yeah. So it's like you're so backpacking like you're... through Europe, but you're joining the circus. Yeah, and you're in like a weird artsy European circus. Yes. I'm beginning to understand Tim Burton's like fascination with Danny Elfman. It feels like Danny Elfman led the life Tim Burton wanted to lead. Yes. Uh, at 18... Danny was finishing up his stint in Europe, and so he decided to go to Africa, busking his way through Nigeria. Wow. He headed back to L.A. and started working with his brother Richard as musical director of Richard's street theater group called the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Right. The Mystic Knights would adapt 20s, 30s jazz in the vein of, like, Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington, etc., to, like the 1970s music of the day um, and perform it as street theater. Now they did this through the seventies and then uh, Richard decided, you know what? I want to step away. I want to get into actually directing film. Um, So the uh, mystic nights of the Oingo Boingo ended. Uh, 
um, sort of. Danny Elfman took over and refocused the group to be a new wave ska-influenced band titled Oingo Boingo. Um, and one of the, you know, he, he pared down the group from like 30 people to like eight people uh, and would include um, someone who'd become a lifetime collaborator and friend, Steve Bartek, who was lead guitar. Uh, Danny was lead vocals and would play backup guitar. Now, as I said, Richard wanted to go off and make movies, but they did this musical theater group for like 10 years. So he produced the film The Forbidden Zone, which was supposed to be like a send-off to the Mystic Knights. And this was Danny's first score Mm. that he got to actually write and put into a movie. Once that ended, of course, he goes off and does Oingo Boingo, which is a a big group uh, through the (laughs) 80s. Yes. With Oingo Boingo, their biggest hit album uh, was their fifth album called Dead Man's Party. Uh, Part of the reason why it was a hit is because it had the song Weird Science on it, Ah. which was used in the movie of that same name. Yes. Um, And though that might have been their biggest hit... Elfman and Oingo Boingo had already caught the eye, or rather ear, of Tim Burton and Paul Rubens, who is Pee Wee Herman, um, as they were in the process of producing the 1985 Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So they bring Elfman on to, you know, do a theme, do some scoring for us. Let's see how this goes. Elfman was like, oh, this is really nerve-wracking so he turned to oingo bongo guitarist steve bartek for help with arrangements and such and together they completed the score and elfman started his lifelong work relationship with burton um this would uh see elfman work uh on beetlejuice 1988 and many other comedies in 1989 when elfman produced the theme for batman and the score for that film you can see his scoring turned to darker and more orchestral focused yes uh themes and would eventually lead elfman well into other genres including drama thrillers indies more minimalistic scores like he kind of became a jack of all trades regardless of where your movie was actually going even though he has these very specific sounding beginnings yeah you can usually tell a danny elfman score what's interesting about the batman thing is it's like this crossroads between like yeah danny elfman's the guy who scores all of tim burton's movies and oh yeah hollywood producers just decided danny elfman was gonna score superhero movies for a while yeah well that that continues throughout the his whole career right it's like who did (laughs) spider-man anyways um so for 1993's nightmare elfman was already established in the film world and he constantly felt pulled between that scoring career, that composer career, and Oingo Boingo. Mm-hmm. After many starts and stops, hiatuses and breaks, Oingo Boingo eventually called it quits in 1995, and their final album was called Boingo. Elfman, you know, does film scores throughout the rest of his career. He's still working. Mm-hmm. Most recently, um, he did uh, the, the Doctor Strange movie because he did... Uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Right. He has a, a long-lasting relationship with Sam Raimi. He scored Dumbo. He scored all three Fifty Shades of Grey movies, huh. et cetera, et cetera. Like, he's done tons of stuff, a whole range of genres. 
But with the pandemic, Danny Elfman returned to his roots and did release a uh, solo album in 2020. Oh, neat. Yeah. So he's, he's you know, still still at it. As far as Nightmare goes, most of 1992 was spent working with Burton on songs and writing the lyrics and all of that, even before the script was written beyond that treatment. Uh-huh. Elfman, I guess, had shared to Burton that he felt he had much in common with Jack Skellington, leading to the decision for Elfman to be Jack's singing voice. Um, but I think I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, oh. Let me pass it back to you, because... The movie's still in production at this point. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, the movie's not even in production yet. We're technically still in the writing stage because, yeah, like you said, Danny Elfman, you know, wrote the music and the lyrics before there was a script. We had this treatment, but now that Burton knew he wanted it to be a musical, it was like, let's write all the songs first and then kind of write the movie to the songs. So Burton and Elfman worked together. And basically, they created the storyline for the film um, in more than just like a here's the beats kind of way, um, but also in a here's the beats kind of way. I was going to say. <laughs> um, and, you know, they had created most of the film's songs before they brought on someone to actually write a screenplay. And the person they brought on was Carolyn Thompson, mm-hmm. who had written Edward Scissorhands. She also would go on to write... Uh, Corpse Bride. Se- oh, sorry. The Secret Garden. Yes. And she directed Black Beauty. Yep. And she would later go on to write Burton's Corpse Bride, which is kind of a spiritual successor to Nightmare in some ways. Thompson had been a novelist who wrote a book whose name is escaping me right now, but it's about an aborted baby who comes back to life. What the fuck? And Burton was like, that's my kind of shit. You should write Edward Scissorhands because, you know, it was Burton's idea, but Burton's weakness has always been that he's, like, not a writer. Not a writer. And not that this is a weakness, but always into weird shit. Yeah. So I can see how that can jive. Yeah. So he was like, you understand me. Let's do Edward Scissorhands. And she said she wrote Edward Scissorhands as, like, essentially a love letter to Tim Burton. Like, it was like, I'm in awe of this guy and his creativity. I'm just going to write the thing that I think will make him happy. Um, So they brought Carolyn Thompson on to write the screenplay. Now, Burton chose not to direct Nightmare, partially due to his existing commitment to shoot Batman Returns for Warner Brothers, which was a whole hellscape of a shoot in and of its own right. Like, that's a whole different story altogether. But also partially due to him not wanting to be involved in the slow and painstaking process of stop-motion animation. You know, Tim Burton is an artist. He likes to draw. He likes to animate. Sure. But I get the impression that he's maybe, like, a little ADHD. I also get the feeling that he likes the instant gratification of, I made the drawing cool. What's next? Yeah, basically. Um, so he, he really didn't want to be doing the, like, well, let's take two to three weeks to film this shot kind of process that stop motion takes. So to that end, Burton picked an old Disney animator friend of his, Henry Selleck, to direct the picture. Henry Selleck was born in 1952 in New Jersey and was obsessed with drawing and animation from a young age. Um, He says his favorite animated films as a kid were The Adventures of Princess Ahmed uh, and Jason and the Argonauts. (laughs) Yeah, this all tracks. 
He studied at CalArts, and after graduation, he gained employment at Disney, working in various small capacities on films like Pete's Dragon, The Watcher in the Woods, The Fox and the Hound, Twice Upon a Time, The Black Cauldron, Return to Oz, The Great Mouse Detective, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But Nightmare was going to be his first project in any kind of, like, lead creative role since school. Um, You know, he's not even been, like, a sequence director for Disney. Like, his credits are, like, storyboard artist and in-betweener and things like that. But he knew Burton back from Burton's Disney days and had been friends with Burton. And the two shared a kind of artistic sensibility. um, And he was familiar with the project from when it was a Disney project in the 80s. Burton's original poem had not included many characters. I listed basically all of them a few moments ago. So when Carolyn Thompson was brought on to write the script, she decided, hey, what if there was like a female character in this story? Uh, So she added the character of Sally and then had to basically push all the way through production for Sally not to get relegated into a background role. Mm -hmm. Um, because of the way that the film's story kept changing throughout production. It was very easy for Sally, who wasn't the creative darling of any of the other people on the film, to kind of get forgotten. But yeah, so that was her biggest contribution um, to the film was Sally. Uh, Selick and Elfman were instrumental in adding a villain to the story, uh, Oogie Boogie, who was intended to be an homage to the roles played by Cab Calloway in old Betty Boop cartoons. Now, as you mentioned before, um, Elfman was the singing voice of Jack Skellington because of this kinship he felt with the character while writing the songs. He was also originally intended to be the speaking voice Hmm. as well as sort of, you know, the voice actors started to get selected uh, for this film. Now, As with many Tim Burton films, the story continued to evolve and change throughout production, including multiple different attempts at an ending. Tim Burton movies really have a hard time with endings. There was an ending where Dr. Finkelstein was revealed to be the villain the whole time. There's a few different things. None of them satisfied Burton. He didn't like any of them. Ultimately, the film went with basically the same ending as the original poem, which also didn't satisfy Burton because by the time they were actually making the movie, he didn't like that ending anymore. Okay. Um, But that's what they ended up going with because it was like, we got to do something, man. Come on. Shooting began in 1991 and continued for two years. Um, The character models were based on the original designs and sculptures of Rick Heinrichs who served as a visual consultant for the film and designed the like new characters and, and things like that to fill out the cast. Burton visited the set about five times in that two-year period. He was super busy with Batman Returns, which, as I said, was a whole nightmare on its own, um, and then pre-production on Ed Wood. And so he left most creative decisions in Selleck's hands though major changes, of course, still needed to be approved by Burton. Like, hey, what's the ending? And things like that. Um, One of the most fraught, challenging of those changes was Henry Selleck's decision to cast actor Chris Sarandon as the speaking voice of Jack uh, instead of Danny Elfman because Selleck felt that the role needed an actor. 
uh, a decision which Burton then had to sign off on, which then damaged Burton and Elfman's relationship so much that it led to Howard Shore scoring Ed Wood mm-hmm. and being, you know, an answer to a trivia question of like, what Burton movie isn't Danny Elfman, right? Another role that was very difficult to cast was the film's narrator. That was originally intended to be Vincent Price before his ill health made that impossible. Uh, He ended up passing away like around the time the movie came out of lung cancer. Um, And so the narrator role went through like a lot of different iterations. Um, Patrick Stewart at one point was the narrator. He's actually on the film's soundtrack as the narrator. Eventually they settled for Ed Ivory. There was supposed to be more narration in the movie than there is. There's kind of this narrated bit at the start and there was supposed to be more narration at the end to like bookend the movie because it starts as someone telling you a story but the ending narration was ultimately cut which frustrated child ben to no end (laughs) because the end narration was on the soundtrack album and so like i knew that it existed and it was like why didn't they why isn't it but it's like it's the same reason why they don't go back to the shopkeep in aladdin it's just like end the movie on a high note just get out of there you know with the cast of characters kind of in place Um, you know, now is the task of matching voices to them. What you said about how Chris Sarandon gets brought in to replace Danny Elfman as speaking Jack is really interesting. He was chosen because he, his vocal performance fit Danny's singing performance. Mm -hmm. So there's still a a connection there, but I also always forget that Chris Sarandon voices jack yeah uh because he matches it so well but it's also really you know it does kind of suck for chris randon because he himself can sing right (laughs) yeah so chris randon was born on july 24th in 1942 in west virginia to greek parents uh their full name is sarandonides okay He went to West Virginia University and uh, earned a bachelor's degree in speech and then went to the Catholic University of America to get a master's in theater. And he graduated in 1965 at age 25, and he's ready to start in improvisation. Oh, okay. Getting a start in improv. He also got his foot in the door in the regional theater scene and getting his stage debut in 1965. Uh, While he was at the Catholic University of America studying theater, he would meet his future wife, Susan Sarandon. Oh, you know, I was going to ask about that. So I didn't know they were married. Uh, I was going to ask about that, and then I was like, that's a dumb question, and I held off. So they were married in 1967. Uh That's right at the start of Susan's career. Yeah. They do get divorced. Spoiler Mm. alert. Mm -hmm. Um, But because she had already taken that name as like, I'm Susan Sarandon, actress. Yeah, yeah. uh, She basically had to keep it. Yeah, because like once you mentioned that the name was like a shortened Greek name, what my brain did was go, well, wait a minute. If it's not a real last name, then how did Susan Sarandon get it? And so I guess... Asked an answer. Yes. So together they moved to New York City with Chris Sarandon bouncing between stage and TV until 1975's film Dog Day Afternoon, Mm. which was Al Pacino's big break. 
in that film, uh, Chris Sarandon was nominated for Best New Male Star at the Golden Globes and nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards. So it was his big break as well. Yeah, not a bad showing. He had a lot of career success through the 70s, but unfortunately not in his personal life as he divorced Susan in 1979. Mm. Chris Sarandon made a career of varied roles, really trying to you know, not get typecast as a villain, but he is best remembered for a lot of villainous roles, including uh, 1985's Fright Night and 1987's Princess Bride. Yes. Um, but did you know he was in 1988's Child's Play, that first Chucky movie? Oh. He's a police officer. Huh. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I I always just think of him as Humperdinck from Princess Bride. In 1993, he got the role of Jack Skellington, which he has reprised many times for many other Disney productions, from Kingdom Hearts to adding his voice for Disney rides. Mm-hmm. He's having this, this success on film, but he's continuing on stage and he's loving it. Um, and, uh, I thought you would be interested to know he did star in a Broadway musical in 1991 called Nick and Nora based off the Thin Man stuff. Um, and that's where he would meet his, uh, third wife, Joanna Gleason. She was Nora and then they got married and they're still married to this day. It's very romantic. Through the nineties, um, he turned more towards TV, including a recurring role on ER, having many guest spots, including on Deep Space Nine and in Charmed. He has a cameo in the 2011 Fright Night, and uh, he continues to do some voice work and some TV here and there. His last stage performance was, um, well, his last stage performance on Broadway was 2012's The exonerated but off broadway in 2015's preludes um he's currently 80 years old so he's not working much anymore sure yeah opposite sarandon is Catherine o'hara as sally uh i talked a lot about Catherine o'hara in uh our episode on beetlejuice which is horror adjacent number 14 if you're looking for it because she played delia deets in that film so since that 1988 film, uh, she's had four hits in 1990 alone, mm-hmm. including Home Alone, and then sequel in 1992. Also Christmas movies. Also Christmas movies. Just to remind everyone, by 1993, she is about 12 years into her film career, but nearly 20 years into acting in general. Yes. Um, she goes on to do many other things. Most recently... On Schitt's Creek. Yeah. Um, and notably, O'Hara is a singer. You know, you get to see her singing on the sketch show SCTV. Um, and so she performs Sally's songs. Yeah, I guess she did Sally's song, which is just called <laughs> Sally's Sally. song. Yeah, she thought she was going to be dubbed. Right. And then they didn't because they were like, oh, you're good. Yeah. They just <laughs> felt that like her vocal performance was worth more than like getting in like someone who might be technically more proficient, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Sally's father slash creator is Dr. Finkelstein, who you've kind of alluded to already, and he is played by William Hickey. William Hickey was born in 1927. <laughs> this is one of those, like, Burton casts, like someone from old movies that he likes move, right? Absolutely. Okay. He started as a child actor on Broadway in 1951. He has had a long stage and TV career using that 
experience to do some teaching in LA as well. Occasionally, he would get into films, particularly, uh, you know, with the 80s, he saw an increase of um, more like older character actor style roles, mm-hmm. um, such as in uh, 1985's Pritzi's Honor, where he earned a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Um, but he was also in 1989's Puppet Master and 1989's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Another Christmas movie. Yes. So he was 65 when in Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, and he would pass away at age 69 in 1997 from complications with emphysema and bronchitis. Mm. Now, the film begins in Halloween Town, and William Glenn Shaddix plays the town's mayor. We previously saw Shaddix as Ortho in Beetlejuice. Yeah. As we, you know, talked about in that episode on Beetlejuice, uh, Shaddix didn't have a huge career, but he is pretty well known for the roles that he has played. Uh, He was an out and proud gay man and would play guest or recurring roles on TV most of the time. And he passed away in 2010 after an accident at home after deteriorating health. Now, Nightmare's villain? (laughs) Because thematically... Isn't Jack the villain? Yeah, and like this is why there isn't a villain in the poem because yes. like structurally you it's just once you make it a feature film you need something more going on there, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh so our villain I mean, listen, Jack is the villain, but Oogie Boogie is a villain. He does <laughs> I think want to eat people. So yes, we're talking about Oogie Boogie. He is played by Ken Page, who was born on January 20th, 1954 in Missouri. He was encouraged to pursue theater in high school, and so he studied at Fontbon College on a full scholarship. He made his Broadway debut in The Wiz and was the original Old Deuteronomy in the Broadway production of Cats. Yes. He reprised the role of Old Deuteronomy in the um, 1998 video release of Cats. Yes. So if people have seen that, then, hey, guess what? You've seen Ken Page as a cat. Mm-hmm. Good job. <laughs> he has a very, very established stage career, occasionally working in film. His debut film was 1988's Torch Song Trilogy, uh, and then he played King Gator in 1989's All Dogs Go to Heaven. Oh, yeah. And then Oogie Boogie in 93. And uh, some other films, but the most recent and notable is 2006's Dream Girls. Oh, okay, sure. Now, in the 90s, he saw many TV guest appearances and kind of balanced live action and voice roles. Like Sarandon, he frequently returns to his Nightmare Before Christmas role for additional Disney productions, including Kingdom Hearts. And there are two sequels to Nightmare Before Christmas as video games, 2004's the Nightmare Before Christmas, colon, Oogie's Revenge, and 2005's The Nightmare Before Christmas, colon, The Pumpkin King. Pop quiz, Ben. Uh, so Ken Page is in both of those. Uh, is Chris Sarandon in both of those? I think he's only in Oogie's Revenge. Correct. Video game titled The Pumpkin King does not see our Pumpkin King return. Know why? No. It's not a sequel. Nightmare okay. Before Christmas colon The Pumpkin King is a prequel uh, about before... Jacket hasn't died yet. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he hasn't become The Pumpkin King yet. So as a powerful singer on stage, Ken Page performs Oogie's singing as well. 
there are many notable voice actors throughout often just with like cameo roles i think mm. would be like the equivalent um but the folks i'll mention here are uh, ed ivory as santa claus slash sandy claus slash the narrator as you established frank welker as zero the ghost dog yeah it's a it's an animal in a thing it's frank <laughs> welker and paul rubens as Locke. Oh, sure. So Locke is the little kid with the devil mask. Okay. Uh, Shock is the witch, and she is voiced by O'Hara. And Beryl is the kid with the circle face, and he is uh, voiced by Elfman. Okay, yeah. So why hire more than one woman once you've got her, I guess? I guess. But no, I mean, it's it's fun. Like, you know, they're doing more than one voice. That's, that's fun. I don't want to make it seem... Oh. Anyways, <laughs> so if you're like listening to the show and you're not super familiar with stop motion animation, I'm going to briefly explain to you how this movie was made. Um, for one thing, stop motion animation is not the same thing as claymation. Mm -hmm. um, in claymation, which is stuff like Wallace and Gromit or like Gumby, you have clay figures that you can like mold and change to change their expressions and make them move around. With stop motion, you are dealing with special kinds of puppets that have rigid um, metal armatures inside them with joints. And so you can move the joints, but then the puppet will stay in that position. And you move them just a little bit, a frame at a time, and shoot it one frame at a time to make the movie. And there are 24 frames in a second and a lot of seconds in 90 minutes. So that's a lot of frames. It takes a long time to do. Nightmare Before Christmas was like one of the biggest stop motion productions in a long time. Um, stop motion has been used for stuff like, you know, the Rudolph Rankin Bass Christmas special type stuff. And also as like a special effect uh, to create monsters and creatures and things before CGI. But 1993, like we're right at Jurassic Park coming out and kind of killing the special effects use of stop motion. Even today, after the success of Nightmare stop motion animation to make a whole movie is still kind of like a, I'll call it a choice. Well, here's the thing. Since Shrek, I think you have to really convince producers or executives, I'll mm -hmm. say, as to why you would do stop motion rather than just CGI. Yeah. That looks like stop motion. I mean, you, you have to convince producers to do traditional 2D animation. Yeah. So yeah. But at the time, this was a huge production for stop motion. It really they had to develop a lot of like technical tricks to do things that no one had ever thought to do in stop motion before. Um, and at one point they had 20 stages activated at the same time. Um, stages meaning for stop motion, like you can imagine like a big table where they've got the puppet set up and they're shooting a scene. Yeah. Like a model train set. Right. They had like 20 of those shooting at the same time. Yeah. Well, cause you don't need to worry about like sound. Sure. And it's going to take forever to do everything. So you need to use your time wisely. Once the film was completed, um, which as you may have gathered by now was kind of an arduous process. Um, it was originally intended to be released under the Walt Disney Pictures banner um, as part of their, you know, long running series of animated features. If you grew up in the 90s, you remember like trailer voice guy would talk about like, the 36th animated feature film from Walt Disney or whatever. It was going to be one of those. Um, it would have been the release for 1993 coming in between Aladdin, which was in 92 
and The Lion King in 94. But by the time of the film's completion, the studio had once again gotten a little bit of cold feet about the film seeming too dark and scary and weird for the Disney brand. Mm. They thought that their core audience, quote unquote, would not come to the movie. Little girls love this shit. What are they talking about? And that's why 1993 is the only year between 1988 and 2005 without a Disney animated feature release. Because instead, the film was released under Touchstone Pictures, which was Disney's label for live action and adult themed films. They don't really use Touchstone anymore because they bought 20th Century. But at the time, Touchstone did not exist really as its own studio. There was no like president of Touchstone. It was just a label um, for marketing purposes. Um, Touchstone had in fact also released Who Framed Roger Rabbit as kind of a compromise move because that movie was kind of like a weird, we're only going to do this one time collaboration between Warner Brothers and Disney. But I bring up Who Framed Roger Rabbit because Who Framed Roger Rabbit was brought up constantly in Nightmare's original marketing um, as kind of a comparison point as both a film that, you know, had a bold vision and also the way it pushed forward the art of animation. So because the film was no longer Walt Disney's The Nightmare Before Christmas, it needed a new brand. Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. (laughs) Yeah, by 1993, Burton was distinct and he was popular. And so, yeah, that's when the film became Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, a decision that has basically pissed off Henry Selleck to this day. Um, who feels that that marketing decision led to Burton receiving far too much credit for the film and often being mistakenly regarded as the film's director. Um, That's why I have that note about Burton was on set like five times in two years. Now, Nightmare had cost $25 million to make, and while Disney had high hopes for the box office, David Hoberman felt that making the film was rewarding enough for the studio in and of itself Like he just felt like that was just worth doing for the sake of doing uh, and made it clear that the studio would be happy with even a modest profit. The film was released in October of 1993. So the studio at least says this is a Halloween movie. Well, like I said, it exists on that spectrum. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, it's closer to Christmas, but I understand that for some people it's closer to Halloween. It's still better than what Warner Brothers did with Tim Burton's Christmas set Batman Returns, which was released in June of 1992. Anyways, Nightmare was released to rave critical reviews, earning praise from major names like Roger Ebert and Peter Travers. It earned $50 million in its initial theatrical run, and it was regarded as like a sleeper hit, um, earning its money over time rather than having like a big opening. High sales on home video led to the film being considered a major earner for the studio. And that merch, though. Yeah, That's what led to Disney sort of embracing Nightmare more as opposed to their initial like arm's length stance. And with embracing Nightmare more and more over the years, we've seen extensive merchandising as well as a heavy presence at Disney parks and Disney stores, especially around the holidays. The film's success led to the production of Henry Selleck's second film, the Roald Dahl adaptation James and the Giant Peach, which was released by Walt Disney in 1996. And interestingly enough, James and the Giant Peach had a much more successful opening weekend than Nightmare did, but it didn't have the longevity 
Um, it kind of petered out, ended up not making as much money overall, and also doesn't seem to have had like the long-term cultural like staying power of nightmare like nobody ever talks about james and the giant peach anymore yeah that's because it scared me as a child do you want to know why because of the spider lady yeah because there's a spider as a main fucking character well not she's not she's not james she's not a main yeah yeah listen roll doll movies if they're done right should scare you so all of this said with the studio kind of embracing nightmare more in 2006 the film was re-released this time as a Walt Disney Pictures film, uh, where it earned additional revenue, bringing its current box office total to $91 million. Yeah, I think if I had to pinpoint when I probably saw it as a high schooler, it would be in 2006, so as a 16-year-old. Got it. Uh, The film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, um, and it was nominated for a Hugo Award. Um, It won a Saturn award. It was very highly regarded is what I'm saying. Now, Disney has long considered the idea of a CGI sequel, uh, but Burton has always naysayed it by basically kind of saying like, what's the story? Jack goes to Thanksgiving town. Like who cares? Um, And so sequels to the story have always been the province of video games, tie in novels and myriad other licensed media. Uh, Because this is a Disney movie, if you want to watch along with us, you can do so on DVD, Blu-ray, Disney Plus. You're not going to have a hard time finding it. Yeah. Well, folks, hopefully you can come along and watch this film with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss The Nightmare Before Christmas from 1993, directed by Henry Selleck. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Nightmare Before Christmas from 1993, directed by Henry Selleck. Ben, uh, did this hold up for you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think uh, it holds up well. It's not perfect. But what's kind of funny is lately we've watched a couple of other like more recent stop motion kids movies. We saw uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio uh, on Netflix. And we also saw Henry Selleck's most recent film, uh, Wendell and Wild, which also I think was on Netflix. Yeah. And um, watching those made me appreciate Nightmare Before Christmas more um, because, like, I don't know, you just, like, see how well this movie was done, I guess. Yeah, I would agree with that. Wendell and Wild has a lot of story problems. Mm. Pinocchio, I really enjoyed. I think you did too. I did, but I think Nightmare Before Christmas is better. And I think some of the things that make it better are how kind of simple and like straightforward and like pure the idea is. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, the fact that Danny Elfman's score and songs really carry the film. 
the fact that he does the score as well as the music means that like the melodies from the songs are like worked into the score itself, which helps kind of just, I don't know, propel the movie in a way that keeps the energy up. Yeah. Well, how about I run through the synopsis real quick? Uh, When we open, we see it's Jack Skellington. He is the pumpkin king of Halloween Town and leads everyone in Halloweening. But Jack has grown tired of the same old routine. So he goes for a long walk at night and he comes across these strange trees in the woods that each have a door that leads to a new and different holiday. And he goes through the one that leads to Christmas Town. And he loves this new thing. He's like, what's this? He's interested in snow and the bright lights. And he wants to bring all of this stuff back to Halloween Town um, because it's new, it's exciting, it's different. And he starts to study the full holiday to really figure out like, okay, what makes it Christmas? Because it's not just, oh, a new doll. There's something that's missing beyond that. Um, And in his studies, he decides, no, you know what? I think we can improve upon it. Now he starts handing out assignments to everyone in Halloween Town to start basically making and improving Christmas, and they will do Christmas this year. Then we see Sally. She is like a girl made out of straw, a straw girl. I don't know. And she's like a patchwork doll, basically. Um, Now she is secretly in love with Jack and she's also psychic. And so she can foresee (laughs) that this adoption of Christmas will end terribly. She does try to warn Jack, but he doesn't listen and tells her, no, just go make me this Santa Claus suit. um, And that's it. Sandy Claus. Yes. Now, Jack gets these three trick-or-treaters, uh, Lock, Shock, and Barrel, to go abduct Santa. And the thing is, is that Lock, Shock, and Barrel are part of Oogie Boogie's crew. Yeah. And so they... They're hench kids. Hench kids. They do abduct Santa, um, and then they take Santa to Oogie Boogie. Now... Jack is all in his getup. They've all made these like toys across the town. And now Jack is ready to go and be Santa. Um, Sally tries to stop him by using fog so that, you know, you can't go flying out at night. Um, But Jack's ghost dog Zero uh, shines his bright nose. So it's a Rudolph analog and they go uh, flying out to go deliver these toys. Jack as Santa is going terribly because all the toys that the citizens of Halloween Town made are all more Halloween toys. They are terrorizing the children and their families. And it gets to the point where the military gets called in and they shoot down Jack as Santa Claus. Uh, Now everyone sees that things aren't going very well for Jack. Sally sneaks off to go and try to get Santa uh, to help Jack and so she goes to Oogie Boogie's she ends up getting captured as well it doesn't go well for her when everyone in Halloween Town sees that Jack gets shot down they think Jack is dead we see Jack actually he's a skeleton he can't die he's fine he's already dead and he you know laments that like oh I I wanted to like make Christmas good but um it didn't work But I feel reinvigorated about Halloween as a holiday. And, you know, I really ruined Christmas. So let's get back to Santa, see if we can fix this. So he heads back. 
Uh, and then he realizes that Santa and Sally are now being tortured, basically, by Oogie Boogie. So he goes to rescue them. And the way that he defeats Oogie is... Um, so Oogie Boogie is a boogeyman, but he is um, kind of like a big potato sack. And Jack pulls the thread of his sack so that it opens and all of the gross bugs that were inside Oogie Boogie get fallen out because he was like a hive mind. Anyway, so Jack apologizes to Santa, like really ruined this. And Santa's like, yeah, like don't mess up with other people's holidays. Um, but I'm Santa. I can save Christmas. And as he's leaving, he, um, Santa, that is, brings snow to Halloween town. And it seems that the citizens of Halloween town are like, oh, what's this? Like possibly maybe learning a bit about the meaning of Christmas because of the snow. Um, and then Jack and Sally have a moment together and they declare that their love for each other. Uh, and that is how the movie ends. So fairly simple plot. Yes. Uh, as we talked about in the first half, uh, the ending is a little wonky. Yeah. So in doing research for this, I like sought out and read the original poem that was going to be the basis of the TV special version of this. And what's interesting is everything in the poem still happens in the movie. Um, you could make a version of nightmare before Christmas. That would be like the original half hour TV special version just by like cutting down the movie and having someone like read the narration in a Vincent price voice <laughs> over it. Um, and so what surprised me was like stuff like, the army shooting Jack out of the sky is like, that's the original ending. Santa Claus bringing Christmas to Halloween town. That's in the original ending. The stuff that's not in the poem is all of the stuff around Sally and Oogie Boogie. Yeah. And you know, poor Sally knowing how she was brought forward by the writer and the writer had to continually fight to make sure Sally was not sidelined. You can feel it in the movie and you can feel it in the narrative that Sally wasn't originally supposed to be here. Yeah. What's interesting is that Sally's arc in the movie is kind of mirroring like her real life arc as a fictional character in that like Sally's storyline is about how she feels sidelined and not a part mm. of things and always has to like sneak out and like is always trying to like get Jack's attention and be more part of what's going on. Yeah. As a kid, and I think now even, um, it doesn't necessarily feel too odd that we keep cutting back to her sneaking out of the castle. Um, it's really just the fact that she gets sidelined in the climax. Mm. Um, I've always liked that she goes and tries to rescue Santa, but then she gets captured as well. Yeah. And then at the end, it's like she like Santa tells Jack, like, you should be listening to this chick. Like, she's mm -hmm. the only sane one around here. Uh, and then... At when Christmas comes to Halloween Town, she sneaks off because she's like, I don't know, always alone. And Jack has to go seek her out. It just, it doesn't really feel like she's well integrated. Well, and so part of that is the problem with taking a story that was meant for like a half hour and turning it into a movie. Yeah. It's it's interesting because we can compare it to things like the Jim Carrey Grinch or something, even though there isn't actually a half hour version of nightmare before christmas but yeah you can tell that sally and oogie were added since they aren't really necessary to the story but i think even if they aren't really necessary on a plot level to the story they add a lot to the movie as like a whole tapestry because 
I think what Sally adds is heart, mm-hmm. but also I think she serves as an audience identification character. I would agree with that. And I think um, adding her, adding Dr. Finkelstein, mm-hmm. Oogie Boogie, the trick-or-treaters, like it, it expands out Halloween Town. Yes. So it's more than just Jack being, you know, the the quarterback of the high school <laughs> football team, you know, it expands it out, which is nice. And I think, you know, A was necessary to make this into a feature film, but also B was necessary for it to feel so... I don't know how to like explain this. Jack doesn't learn anything at the end, but um, well, okay. Asterisk <laughs> to that, but Jack doesn't really learn anything. There isn't much to his character development in that sense, but having the rest of the town learning about Christmas at the end feels like it caps off things nicely. And I think if we didn't have characters that we were familiar with, from the town beyond just like, Oh, there's the creature from the black lagoon. There's a werewolf. Uh, it wouldn't feel as, um, satisfying of a capstone. Yeah. They're, they're foils. Uh, Um, I'll disagree that Jack doesn't learn anything, but I will, I'll take your point in the sense that Jack ends up in the place he started in, right? Like as a character where, because like, what is the lesson then that Jack learns? Let's okay. I have a whole thing I want to talk about with that. But there's things we have to cover first. Yeah, you're okay. like you're getting ahead of me. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, so I wanted to talk about Sally as an identification character for the audience because I think that's really important with this once it's a movie-length story because I think most kids can relate to Sally uh, in the sense that like she's someone who like sneaks away from home and is always like has this parental figure watching out over her and like wants to be involved in like the big things, but kind of is on the sidelines. She has this hero that she idolizes. She also is the only one who like instinctively recognizes that Halloween and Christmas don't mix, which is a thing that kids in the audience know she's useful because, um, Jack as a main character is not relatable to children. Jack is relatable to artists and creatives who are stuck in a rut, um, particularly artists and creatives who are successful, um, but have reached that point in success where they're being asked to largely like repeat themselves and do the same things over and over again. Like I can see why Jack as a character appeals to like Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. Especially knowing that at this point in time for Elfman, he was feeling torn between Oingo Boingo and his film work. And so, like, I think that Jack as a character needs to be viewed through, like, that lens. That's what the story is about. Like, Nightmare Before Christmas is kind of about, like, creative burnout and then, like, recharging yourself and getting back into the swing of things. But that's, like, not really, like, an emotional arc that translates well to children. So Mm -hmm. Sally is a really good addition to help bridge that story to the kids who are watching. With Sally's arc in the movie of like feeling like she's on the sidelines and needing to be needed, um, what's interesting is that was Zero's arc in the poem. Oh, interesting. Uh, In the poem, Zero, who's one of the few other characters uh, than Jack, um, is like really ignored by Jack all throughout until he gets his Rudolph moment. And then the culmination of his arc is like, yay, I get to be useful. Um, And that kind of got moved on to Sally. As for Oogie Boogie the other 
big addition. He's really just here because this is a movie. And I think the difference between a movie and a TV special is a movie needs to have a big climax. Yeah. The special would have just ended with, you know, Jack gets shot down in the graveyard. He realizes his mistake. He goes back to Halloween Town and releases Santa Claus. Santa Claus saves Christmas, brings Christmas to Halloween Town. The end. Um, there isn't really anyone who, like, captures Santa Claus. Like, he's just kind of, like, there in Halloween Town captive, basically. And so you need a big climax. And although it makes sense narratively for Sally to be the one to go out and save Santa, I think the reason why she gets sidelined again as a damsel in distress is because probably there was a feeling that, like, if we're going to have a big action climax with a villain, like our hero, Jack, needs to do something that is actually, like, heroic and that achieves something and isn't just, like, a big fuck-up. Um, and so he needs to be the one rescuing Santa and Sally. And for him to do a rescue, there needs to be someone who's opposing him. And therefore we get this Oogie Boogie character. But, you know, one of the other ways that you can tell that they're add-ons to the story is the way that like they're, I'm going to call it lore is really unclear and kind of out of nowhere. Like, Sally's sort of like, yes, she's a patchwork doll, but she's also kind of a Frankenstein riff. And Oogie Boogie comes out of kind of nowhere in the middle of the movie. He's the meanest guy in town. Jack doesn't like him, but there's no like backstory given, no mm -hmm. reason for that. Um, which is why, like, I think a ton of um, Nightmare Before Christmas tie-in media is all about like explaining <laughs> some of these things. And then he's like, he's a bunch of bugs in a bag. He's a boogeyman. He's into like jazz and gambling and like he eats people in stews. Just like a lot of his stuff kind of feels like a little bit out of left field, right? And that's a problem we see in a lot of Tim Burton movies where things kind of come out of left field. Yeah. But I think in Nightmare, the music, the songs, and the structure of the story really help smooth that out mm -hmm. because the music makes things be cohesive mm -hmm. um even though the music for oogie boogie is in a genre sense fairly different from everything else because he is inspired by cab calloway type of music rather than the more orchestral stuff with like jack's song for example but it does weave together very nicely um side note here of just how good this music is. Yes. Um, like many early <laughs> and throughout his career, Danny Elfman music, he returns to some of the same uh, flourishes and stuff. So you're like, you can hear Batman in here. You can hear many things throughout. But that's just who he is as a composer. And I think he does a fantastic job here. Yeah. One of the things about Elfman's music that I think pairs really well with Burton's filmmaking is Elfman writes music that kind of propels scenes forward mm -hmm. and the more a tim burton movie has of that kind of energy the more it can kind of skip past the parts of the story that don't really make sense and just keep things going keep things moving keep you in the vibe of exactly. the movie which is much more important um i also think that the structure of the movie really helps um in that this is a very a to b kind of movie mm -hmm. um you know we follow and introduce each new character and each new plot point by meeting them from a scene that's already happening you know we don't 
have Jack lamenting, oh, uh, Halloween, I'm so bored of Halloween, and then cut to Christmas Town. Here's Santa being like, we're getting ready for Christmas. No, we follow Jack to Christmas Town, right? And we follow the kids who capture Santa to Oogie Boogie. And so even the stuff that's like, oh, where did this come from? Feels like it's well integrated because we're kind of getting there naturally in the story rather than having it kind of dumped on us. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Um, I want to speak to what you said about the vibe. Mm. Um, What I really like with Halloween Town is that German expressionism aesthetic is fully on display as you would expect uh, to the point where like color isn't super extant beyond green or orange or orange. Um, it's, it's fantastic. And I think it was a really fantastic decision on the art producers, uh, part that Christmas town, uh, you know, has all the bright lights and everything, but it's based on like Dr. Seuss aesthetic mm-hmm. because both Dr. Seuss and German expressionism are surreal. Yes. And so it's different because it's Christmas, it's colors, it's snow, it's happy, but there is a vibe that links the two. So it doesn't feel jarring in like a good way. Yeah. They're different enough that you understand that like, this is a different world, but similar enough that they don't feel like, like they feel like they're part of the same universe. It it makes sense that they're part of the same universe. Well, it's like there's, you know, the really iconic image from nightmare before Christmas is Jack on that hill that sort of just turns into a, like a curl uh, in front of the moon. Right. Yeah. And that's super iconic, but like that kind of, um, I'm going to call it topography. (laughs) That's something you would see in like a Dr. Seuss visual. Right. So yeah, there's this, there's this visual language that links them. The visuals for this movie still hold up really well. And I mean, not just in the character designs um, and the the look of the film, but also the the animation holds up really well. You can tell what shots were meant to be impressive for stop motion in 1993, but they also don't like stop the movie to go, Oh, look at this. Yeah. And actually, I wanted to ask you, so there are quite a few times, even in like the opening of the movie, where we see shadows, mm-hmm. but how would they do the shadows? Would they do stop motion and just cast the shadow or would that have been animated in there's, some sort of way? There's a lot of tricks. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of tricks. So one of the things the movie does, um, if it's like an animated shadow rather than like just a static shadow, I guess, um, you know, when it's like oogie boogie being like i'm the shadow on the moonlit night or whatever that's animation uh same with like the ghosts same with like fire Mm -hmm. in the movie tends to be animation um like when i say that i mean traditional 2d animation that's layered on top um other tricks in the movie include uh shots where there's like liquid like sally um scooping the soup right that's just like regular live action yeah and same with the thick fog that comes out of the fountain. Yeah. Things like that. Um, so there's a lot of tricks all throughout, but yeah, I think the visuals really hold up. The animation really holds up the character designs, all of that still really works. Uh, I wanted to say that I, I definitely seeing the movie again, like I agree with you, this is a Christmas movie. Mm -hmm. Like, because even with all the Halloween elements, it's about, trying to figure out what the meaning of Christmas is. 
Yeah, but also when we start, Halloween is over. <laughs> sure, sure. But like, I'm talking like on a narrative thematic basis. Yeah. This is similar to Christmas movies in that it's about characters trying to figure out what Christmas is all about, which is a pretty common Christmas movie theme. What's sort of interesting to me is the movie doesn't tell you what the meaning of Christmas is or what Christmas is all about because the movie knows that you're a human who exists in the real world. And so, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know what the meaning of Christmas is. The story comes from the characters not getting it. Um, Yeah. Like, I really enjoy seeing Jack do all of those experiments with trying to figure out because yeah, it is like a teddy bear. That's just, that's just a teddy bear. Mm -hmm. There's nothing inherent about it tying itself to Christmas, but we know the meaning that it, it symbolizes and stuff. Um, so I have a lot of like, uh, my, my brain gets percolating because of the idea of like simulacrum and like imitation and its connection. And like the idea of like the symbol disconnected from its meaning and, and stuff like that. That's beyond what this podcast is about. Well, you know, it's interesting how like when Jack's in Christmas Town, he gets it. Yeah. But when he leaves, he doesn't, which kind of has this really accurate vibe of like how Christmas time just sort of feels different from the rest of the year. And I think ties in with Hallmark movies where it's about like this business person from the right. city relearning the meaning of Christmas when they go back home to rural where sure. they came from. <laughs> I think it's really interesting how, yes, Jack gets Christmas when he's in Christmas Town, but doesn't when he returns. And then that is also what kind of foils him trying to adopt Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a natural progression to something I wanted to talk about, Mm -hmm. which was cultural appropriation. Yes, (laughs) I, I wanted to talk about this too, because if you're online a lot and you like are online in the kind of spaces that conflate pop culture criticism with political activism. Um, You see Nightmare get used a lot as a way to help people understand what cultural appropriation is. And I think it's a great example as well because it shows that the um, appropriators' intentions, however well-meaning or even just indifferent, uh, don't matter at the end of the day because it doesn't change the fact that there is appropriation going on. Yeah. So how about I give a definition about what cultural appropriation is just to help uh, any listeners who might not be familiar with it. For so sure. cultural appropriation at its baseline is like someone from typically a dominant culture Uh, So I'll say Sarah in Canada, looking at a different culture, typically a minority culture in where that dominant person is. So let's say Sarah looking at Japanese culture and me going like, ooh, that's cool. I want to like engage with that and learn about it. And rather than digging into like, well, what is the meaning of a kimono? I just start wearing a kimono and being like, yeah, isn't this cool? It's Japanese without looking at like, well, what? is the style of kimono, does that have anything to do with like different festivals or anything like that? And just engaging with it on that very surface level. So that's a very simple explanation of what appropriation is. Typically when it gets uh, brought up as like with a critical eye is when there's a form of like colonialism going on. So that's why you typically see the dominant versus minority cultures. 
because there's just that sense of reduction of that other culture as just being exotic or foreign or something to play with um, without having to actually like learn more about it, but also getting to engage in that otherness without having to deal with the real life barriers that someone from that culture might experience. So Nightmare doesn't really cover that part. And it's also kind of, you know, to put it out there, it's not like Christmas is a minority culture. But the way that this kind of appropriation is different than, like, say, cultural sharing is because it's someone from a different culture coming in and being like, oh, this is cool. I want to engage without actually, like, learning from the person who is part of that culture. Yeah, without actually talking to anyone from Christmas Town exactly. and, like, engaging in an exchange of ideas. So that's why it's kind of nice at the end when Santa brings Christmas to Halloween Town because then, cool, we're having a shared exchange here about what it means to be for Christmas. Um, and I like that, that it's at that point that the citizens of Halloween Town start to understand what Christmas is because it's no longer just engaging with the iconography without understanding the meaning. It's that cultural exchange that is what is positive rather than just the uh, appropriation. So what I find really interesting about this is the way that talking about Nightmare Before Christmas and cultural appropriation is a great way to talk about cultural appropriation to someone who maybe doesn't understand like what the concept is, but also is an interesting way to talk about the way that media criticism has been hijacked by um, well-meaning moralistic judgment. Mm -hmm. So here's okay. So starting from the, like what we're talking about cultural appropriation, I think it's for the best that the issues of like imperialism are not addressed in nightmare. Like you talk about like, yeah. Oh, Christmas isn't a minority culture or whatever. I think if you're trying to help someone understand cultural appropriation, it's really good to take it out of the context of things that they are going to have like innate emotional responses to. This is the star Trek methodology, right? Where it's like, once we're abstracting it, we can talk about it in a way that you can understand it better, but it is, it's a really good example of non-malicious cultural appropriation and the way that cultural appropriation can happen in a like way because like you had a positive experience you thought this thing was really cool and you wanted more of it but you don't understand it because jack learns about it like he does all the research but he doesn't get it because he's not part of that culture and he hasn't done the effort to actually engage with it like you said and so he just decides to start doing it without understanding the meanings and the assumption that he can improve upon it as well. Yeah. By integrating it into his own culture, right. Which is like a very common thing we see with cultural appropriation as well is like, well, how do I Westernize this or whatever? Right. Um, I think that, you know, what's sort of important to take away here is that like Jack wants to participate in Christmas essentially without converting to Christianity. <laughs> yeah, like like converting to the culture that it means something to. So, you know, you use the example of like, oh, I just want to start wearing kimonos, right? One of the things that is problematic if you just start wearing another culture's clothing because you think it looks cool is you don't know what the like cultural meaning of those yeah. clothing are. So it's like, oh, let's say that, you know, you decided to wear something in the color red because it's your favorite color and you don't understand that like that kind of garment in that color means that like 
you know, you're a widow in mourning or something like that. You know what I mean? Like you don't get the meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I really like the way the movie does it because it's very value neutral um, and lets you kind of just understand it as a concept. That being said, this movie is good for understanding the concept of cultural appropriation. It is not about cultural appropriation. No, no. And if you start to try to apply that lens to it, to view it as a movie about cultural appropriation, it gets real yikes real fast, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Because once you start applying the critical lenses and the academic um, readings that you can do to pieces of media as like barometers for whether thing is morally good or morally bad, the whole system of what you're doing breaks down. Um, Because if we try to see it as like, oh, this is a story about cultural appropriation, then that means like, okay, well, what does Jack learn in the story? Well, he learns he shouldn't appropriate Christmas and he should just stick to Halloween, which means that if we're then extending the allegory back to real world, it's saying, you know, if you're into Japanese culture, maybe don't, maybe just don't be into, just stick to white people things. And that's kind of yikes because, hey, white people should only do white people things and, you know, African people should only do African people things and and so on and so forth. That's fascism. That's what the Nazis want. Like, there's nothing... Down to the fact of like, well, this is white people land, so non-white people get out. Right. Is kind of where it gets taken to the... Yes. And it's like, you know, the world would be a much less rich place if that was the way we did everything because it's like if you want to say that white people can only dance the dances that white people dance it's like well i hope everyone goes back to waltzes and ballet right it's like oh you can only listen to white people music it's like well there's a rock and roll there's all music of the 20th century just gone for you our culture becomes richer when we share mm-hmm. um and we shouldn't the you know the idea that we should all stick to our little boxes is not a good one i think that if someone is taking that lesson from nightmare uh they are also still misreading the movie because at the end santa shares christmas through the power of snow um (laughs) and so it's showing that like sharing is good as long as it's like a share not just a take yes i'll agree with you there but i think you know and we, we were talking about this a little earlier. If you start looking at the movie in terms of like, well, what's the moral lesson here? What does Jack learn? Like what Jack learns is that like he's good at Halloween and he should stick to Halloween. And if you try to apply that as like a moral lesson for behavior or something, that moral of like, well, you should just stick to what you're good at. Like that sucks. And I think the mistake that you're making if you're doing that with this movie and with many other movies too, is not all stories are meant to have morals Mm -hmm. or be for moral instruction. If you want to have a moral from Nightmare that's going to teach your kids something, I would say the best one to take away from it is that sometimes the things you try don't work out and that's okay. I completely agree with what you're saying. But I think um, part of the issue with the narrative structure of Nightmare is that it's not super 
strong or clear what it is that Jack learns, Mm -hmm. like what his lesson is. And I'm not saying that like it needs to be, you know, tied to a moral lesson because like I am agreeing with what you're saying, but because it's wishy-washy what Jack does actually learn, um, it makes it harder to avoid this kind of like, well, then what does this movie mean? Because like, does he, like you said, learn that you should stay in your lane? Does he learn that you need to be true to who you are? Does he learn that he needs better work-life balance? <laughs> like, So I think the thing about like what does Jack learn mm-hmm. is when we come back to like what's the movie about? And I want to take a brief moment to talk about allegory versus applicability, which is also a thing that's sort of tied in with Death of the Author. Uh, Death of the author doesn't mean you can just ignore the author's intent for a story. It means that readings of the story that the author didn't intend are valid. Um, But it's not an excuse to just ignore what the author was trying to say in the story. And so when we look at Nightmare, it's not really an allegory for cultural appropriation. Because that's not what any of the people making it intended. However, it is applicable as a way to understand cultural appropriation. That's a reading you can put on it. But if we want to talk about what the film is about in terms of the intent of the story, I think the way that makes everything click into place is seeing it as a story about creative burnout. Mm -hmm. And that's a difficult reading to come to on it if you're a child, which is what I was talking about earlier with Sally. But I think that's what Jack is meant to represent. It's not so much that Jack is like learning something it's that the movie is demonstrating kind of a way to recover from creative burnout, which is that like sometimes you need to like walk away from what you're good at and walk away from the thing that you're burnt out on and try new stuff. And it might turn out terribly, you know, William Shatner's music album might not be for everyone. Right. But doing that gives you a break from the thing you were burnt out on and lets you kind of come back to it with renewed energy, right? It's that at the end, Jack goes like, okay, I fucked up. Christmas isn't for me. But you know what? I feel better about going back to Halloween now because he's taken that break. Like mm-hmm. that's ultimately the arc that Jack has. It's it's not a huge big meaningful character arc it's just a story about you know it's not about staying in your lane it's about this is what i'm good at but every once in a while you need a break that's what the story's about and i think things fit a lot better when you view it through that lens but that doesn't mean that other readings on the movie aren't valid correct yeah Yeah. well thank you everyone for joining us on this horror adjacent meandering through the nightmare before christmas this has been a very uh, fun episode to do if you would like to have your say in the next horror adjacent bonus episode will be about you can head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast and vote the theme for january is new year new you um currently i think the poll is being like run away with by death becomes her But if you want a different movie to win, yeah, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, sign up to be a patron for as little as a dollar a month and participate in the poll. We'll be back to regular episodes next week and have a fantastic year. We'll see you next year. (laughs) 
Bye. Bye.